0: I'll take a gulp, and welcome to the bi-weekly, is it bi-monthly, bi-monthly Industry 4.0 Community Podcast. I am your host, Walker D. Reynolds. It is Tuesday, March 7th, and this podcast is hosted by 4.0 Solutions, our guests today. Actually guests, Vaughn and Zach are back doing the regular thing every other week, But uh, this week, we have Kutsai Manda, I never pronounce it right, Manda Teresa from Industry 4.0 TV and HiveMQ. We will be bringing him in shortly. We're going to talk about his journey in IIoT. We're going to be talking about the Arduino Opta. We're going to talk a little bit about Tesla Investor Days. We've got a a great conversation that we're going to have. Well, I think the, the real meat and potatoes is going to be, we're going to be talking about MQTT. We're going to be talking about Spark Plug and where he and I both think um, this should go. And I have no idea where he thinks it should go. We're going to have that conversation today. But quick announcements, real quick. Uh, those of you who are in the Mastermind program, our next session is this Friday, March 10th at 8 o'clock. For those of you who are not in Mastermind and mentorship and you hear us talk about it all the time, Mentorship is our program at IoT.University where we train engineers on how to support Industry 4.0 projects, all the technical skills that go into being a digital transformation engineer or specialist. Mastermind is where we teach the leaders and the solutions architects on how to lead digital transformation, um, how to write strategy, how to write architecture, minimum technical requirements. What we're doing this year, we're in our third year of the program, and many of the people are in the program, it just continues to grow, the people. Our churn rate's actually really, really low. I think it's like 5%, so 1 in 20 drops at the the end of a year. Um, So we have a really low churn rate. We have lots of really advanced people in the programs. So what we're doing this year is we're digitally transforming a virtual factory, So and the two groups are actually working together. The mastermind group is our product owners and our scrum masters and the mentorship group are our actual developers. Um, and our this is actually our first sprint review, which we'll be doing this this Friday. We'll be doing the sprint review on the initial um, simulation namespace that was built by the mentees last month. For those of you who are in mentorship, the mentor next mentorship session is thanks Friday, March 17th at nine o'clock. Excuse me. Those of you who are in the chat GPT for digital transformation workshop, that's March 23rd at 10 o'clock in the morning. You can still sign up for that at Iot.university. We're going to basically be teaching how to leverage chat GPT as a lever, as a lever for speeding up your digital transformation tasks. I can tell you this right now, if you're not doing it, you're making a huge mistake. There's no way you're going to be able to compete with someone who is leveraging chat GPT um, in their professional daily lives. Um, so we're going to talk about how to, how to optimize code and how to use it to write specifications and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Core MES Bootcamp, uh, session number seven was this past Saturday. Um, we uploaded to the repository the MES. Josh, will you throw up the screenshot of the MES system? So for those of you who are in Core MES, the Core MES Bootcamp has, um, we, we actually built a Core MES system um, with all the students in there. I think it was 180 students total were in the program. Um, we uploaded all, the, rep- all the, the, the MES system, the database backup, all the instructions, documentation, up to the repository. A quick reminder for those of you who are in that program, there are four technical tasks that you were given at the end of the last session, uh, things that you needed to fix, okay? Things that you need to repair in the system so that we could test your technical skill. Um, those are in the instructions in the repository, okay? So if you read the instructions, it has the four things that you need to do. In two weeks, we will upload the fixed copy to the repository so that you can compare your work with the way it should actually look. And then for those of you who want to move on to the Advanced MES Bootcamp, that starts in April. There's going to be three sessions. You guys should hear the big announcement about this. Basically, um, Advanced MES Bootcamp Able to get all three sessions for one price, I think, or you can buy the individual sessions separately. The three, um, the two big topics that we're going to cover is how to merge ERP and MES together, and I think we're going to be doing that in session two. So, how do you take, say, a BAPI from an ERP system and its namespace and master data model and merge that together with an MES namespace? and including the structures, the definitions, the instances, and all the events. How do you merge those two together in one namespace so that you can then transmit that to a higher level, taking things like um, say the master ID, the ID from a CMMS system, or the asset ID that lives in the ER, uh, ERP, and how do you reconcile that with the ID of that same asset inside of a MES system, right? These are really common technical issues you run into during digital transformation that no one ever teaches you about. So we're gonna be doing ERP and MES conversion, I think in the second session. And then in the third session, we're gonna be covering a couple of different topics. But the big one is gonna be, how do you take your namespace? How do you stream that into the cloud? And how do you develop a basic linear regression to predict the future from one of your KPIs, okay? All right, with that, that's all That's all the announcements. We'll go ahead and bring in Kutsai, Zach, and Vaughn.
1: What's up, gang? How's it going? Hey. It's going well. Hey, I got a question on that uh, the boot camp. Yeah, because <clears throat> I, I didn't catch it. Like, so I'm assuming like if you're a part of the mastermind program, is that kind of like you get access to all of these different wor- workshops and courses, or are they a la carte, or how does that work?
0: Yeah. So every anybody, everybody who was in mastermind, they got core MES boot camp. So mm-hmm. uh, not everyone in mastermind just did core MES, but then other people could buy the core MES program. So they could purchase it a la carte. But if you were in mastermind, you got core MES.
1: And what about the chat GPT workshop coming up?
0: That's totally, totally standalone. Totally standalone. In fact, the lesson that I'm doing, I'm doing in the chat GPT workshop is a lesson I already did in mastermind. Well, it's, it's a big, it's a bigger lesson. It's a much longer lesson, but I already did the chat GPT lesson in mastermind. Got it. So one of the things that we're working on at IOT.University is uh, uh, most of the content, most of the programs that we develop, if you're in the Mastermind program, you generally get everything, but you don't always get everything. It's all dependent upon whether we think that thing that we're developing is a, is technical or non-technical because Mastermind is a non-technical program. If Let's say you're a, you're an accountant who's been brought into digital transformation we focus more on the leadership aspects, design, architecture, strategy. That's what we do in Mastermind. And then the, we don't we don't teach technical skills, but we talk about technical concepts. So if there's a program where we're teaching technical skills, we generally don't include that in uh, Mastermind. Got okay. It. With Core MES, we did for the people who had technical skills, and I think in in Mastermind we have like 180 members, something like that. And about 100 of them have technical skills. So about 100 of them participated in the core MES. So good question. So Kutsai, Kutsai manda teresa that's how you pronounce it, right?
2: Yes, that's correct. correct.
0: Why don't you quickly, so why don't you, for our audience, everybody knows you, Industry4.0 TV, you just did a a great um, blog series on unified namespace for HighBIMQ. Absolutely loved it. It was awesome. Most people know who you are. You're on other podcasts and stuff. But for those people who don't know who you are, why don't you quickly, who are you? Where do you live? What do you do? Kind of what's your background?
2: Okay. So first of all, thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me here. It's really an honor to be part of this uh, conversation. So yeah, for all those that don't know me, um, I'm Kutsai mandi Teresa. I'm currently a developer advocate at HiveMQ and I'm um, the founder of Industry for Auto TV. Um, so as Alka said, I uh, run a podcast session. I also do some uh, tutorial videos focusing on industrial IoT. I've got a background in industrial system integration. Um, so I'm originally from uh, Zimbabwe, uh, graduated with a degree in electronic engineering and then i moved to south africa the college so this is where i i spent uh, uh, the better part of my professional career in south africa so um i started out in the embedded systems design space you know working with things like your uh, peak microcontrollers you know 8 bit 16 bit 32 bit and that was in the mining industry so basically uh, building some gas detection instruments and some uh data logging uh tools, you know, like kind of like interfacing uh software with some um, embedded systems and at, at times they kind of like pushing that data to um to the internet. And uh so my my experience really with uh, industrial automation uh started about um two years after graduating from college so this is where I joined uh, a small uh, system integration company in South Africa in fact it it was a, a distributor for uh Opti 22 which is really kind of what really uh, uh attracted me because i've i i was really kind of like more on the c coding like kind of guy so i was never really into ladder logic so when i actually uh uh discovered there is, that there's a platform actually that was before i even joined the system integration company i was kind of like investigating about plcs and then only to find out that a lot of them, they're kind of like really expensive. You can't buy something that you can play around with. I was used to playing around with Arduino and things like that. So I, I came across uh, up to 22 uh, programmable automation controllers that was like the Snap SnapPacks way before they had the uh, Group Epic and stuff. So like as fair would have it, I would actually then meet these Opto22 uh, distributor distributing the same uh, programmable automation controllers. So I really kind of felt in love with the fact that I can literally just write scripting languages on a PLC. So that really what drew me into that. So I fell in love with uh, Opti22, um, building some uh, automation systems, mostly for uh, small batch plants, manufacturing. So this uh, is,
0: so based on, you were talking somewhere between like two two 2008, 2012, something like that, in that range? Yeah,
2: so 2012, 2013.
0: Okay, got it, all right, Yeah. Good.
2: Yeah, so this is where mm-hmm. I was kind of like working with these um, uh, systems. So as you would know, uh, up to 22 uh, is like programming automation controllers are not that popular in the industry. So maybe they're kind of like starting to gain traction. So one of the things that really like stood out for me the moment I started working in the industrial automation space was like how difficult it is to get data out of like for me, that was just like ridiculous, right? So like, how do you operate? Just seeing people moving around with pen and paper, for me, that was like something that 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 showed me that this is an industry that that is really ripe for change, you know? Yes. So that's the when I started to kind of like investigate, you know, uh, how how data integration technologies. This is where I came across things like OPC UA, you know that was before I really discovered MQTT, right? So OPC UA, and then I kind of like, because no one was talking about MQTT right. back then. Like, that was, that was like no. OPC UA, I mean, and, that, and, and
0: you know, in fact, at that time, twenty twelve, like the real big announcement for MQTT was in 2013-14. Like, I, I think Arlen's first, like its big coming out was uh, ICC in 2014, I'm pretty sure. It may have been 13 and he did, he had, he presented to a packed room and he integrated, I, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't remember. It, I think it was 500 PLCs in 10 seconds. He did a, wow. and it was a room, a packed house. And I was in that room and I went, the moment he did it, I was like, whoa, like everything just changed. That, I've been waiting for this, right? It was like, yeah, that time, that t- most people just don't understand that MQTT, even though it was invented in 98, 99, 2000, it didn't become a, an industrial player, even though it was developed as an industrial protocol. It was Facebook who was using it like in Messenger and stuff before, and then all of a sudden, Arlen and CirrusLink. Even though Arlen's the inventor of MQTT, it took him creating CirrusLink as a company to develop the actual modules for industrial companies to be able to use the integration. And then it just sort of everything just changed. I mean, it just you know now nine years later, whatever. It, we've hit critical mass this is all any, anyone talks about but yeah so you went opcua and then then you got introduced to mqtt later on down the road when did you start industry 4.0 tv and why
2: so i so for me it was a way of really kind of like um, uh, learning by teaching right so that that was just a way of teaching myself right because there wasn't really any material out there that was like kind of like addressing um, uh, industrial iot uh, of course, until I discovered uh, 4.0 solutions, uh, that was like uh, uh, intelligent integration back then, right? Your yeah. channel. And there wasn't really a lot of content out there, like yeah. that really, like technical content that showed you exactly how to kind of like work with these systems. So, as a way of kind of like teaching myself these things, so I kind of like started writing uh, articles. So, it was articles back then. I didn't have the idea of like building industry for TV. So, I was kind of like writing articles. Um, so I remember I, I wrote my first uh, article on MQTT, that was 20, 2015, somewhere around there. So like, because when I discovered MQTT, after having played around with OPCU and stuff like that, when I discovered MQTT for me, it was like, it was, it was a mind-blowing experience, right? Yeah. Say, like it's, like I mean, th- there must be something. In. Do you mean that I can just like redefine a, a topic, like dynamically and send data, that's it, nothing more to do? Like that simplicity for me was something that really... Really amazed me, so this is where then I kind of like started to uh, investigate more about MQTT. So um, back then it was mostly articles, so I read, I, I wrote a lot of articles, and then did uh, a few videos here and there. And turns out that it resonated right with a lot of people. So maybe it's because of the including same
0: effect. including me, by the way. So okay. I mean, I, I know lots of content. I but I'll say this, I the two content creators who I, I appreciate the most in the industry when people ask me hey Walker what content do you watch in our industry I watch a lot because I just want to know what people are talking about and you know and, and, and do I agree with what people are saying and should I you know but it, there's two people who whose content I absolutely love I love yours and I've been watching you since 20 I think 2019 2018 2019 religiously 2019 I think. And Tim, Lil, Tim Wilborn, right? So I, I love the work Tim Wilborn does. I love the work you do. And, and so when people ask me, I always recommend the two of you. And what's interesting is when a vendor comes to me and a vendor says, and by the way, this is the first time Kutsai and I are ever really meeting, right? I mean, we've, I think we've messaged before through LinkedIn or whatever, but we've never, this is the first time we're ever really meeting. And um, whenever a vendor contacts me, And they're like, oh, is there anybody else we should talk to? I always, I say, oh, you should definitely reach out to Kutsai. You should definitely reach out to Tim Wilborn. And I've never spoken to Tim Wilborn in my life, just other, like through Twitter, same thing. Like you guys are creators that I really love and enjoy watching. And I've been watching you religiously since 2019, for sure. So, but uh, the the OPCU MQTT thing. So one of the things that we talk about, is this is a conversation I think the community wants to hear. So your role so you still do industry 4.0 TV, and then you are you're at Hive MQ now, right? Yes. You're based in Munich, you're at Hive MQ. What brought you to Hive MQ? How did that happen, and what is it you do there?
2: So So like I explained before, I, I kind of like fell in love with uh, MQTT. So I was uh, like most like most of the time creating content around MQTT every other day. And then I I, I, I I met Dominic, like the co-founder of um, uh, HiveMQ. And then we kind of like, um, we connected on LinkedIn. And then uh, we, 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 I think it was a guest at some point on my uh, uh, podcast. So I was already creating uh, content around MQTT and OPC UA, by the way. So, um, and then from there, I, I started working as a freelance, right, so uh, creating content for, 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 for the HiveMQ website. Right. So for me, that initial decision to really kind of like start working with IVMQ, first of all, is like the the company has got a culture of education. So as you would know, they've got like like the 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 most popular MQTT series, right? So that's, for me, was the first positive sign of joining IVMQ, the, the idea of like teaching. So as you would know, in, in our industry, this culture of just educating without expecting something in return is, is, is rare. Of, right? <laughs> it's, it's very rare, yeah, very, very rare. rare. Right. So for me, that was the first really uh, thing that drove, drove me to, to, to IMQ, that, that value of, of, of ed- educating the community and also the fact that I was already doing MQTT. So it's something that I believe in and still believe in, by the way. So being a part of something um, that is driving MQTT, which I, I believe is a standard that is really uh, currently uh, something that is poised to change the industry. It was also a a, a, a no-brainer for me. So I really wanted to be part of of something. So at Hive MQ, I'm uh, I'm a developer advocate. So I create content, right? So basically, I do the same thing that I was doing for industry for TV, but now I'm doing it under Hive MQ, right? So basically showing MQTT sometimes. For
0: those of you you who haven't already read it, um, Josh will be pasting in the chat uh, a link to the UNS Essentials that Kutsai did i think it was a three part series right yep. so he did a three part series on the uns essentials and i shared it on linkedin and stuff outstanding primer that is i mean if i had wrote read it wrote it myself i would have written it exactly the same way so i mean he absolutely nailed it he hit a hit a, a home run on the and and i highly recommend anyone to go to that link go to the the HiveMQ's website and read the UNS Essentials, that three-part series, because that'll give you the framework, the the foundation. I currently am writing a a book on the Unified Namespace. So in, and, and the goal is, I, I think we're going to try and give it away for free. I think we're just going to give it away, um, and it'll just basically be where did the UNS come from? I'm going to talk about the history of when I, when I started developing the Unified Namespace in the in the mid you know 2005. In a salt mine, actually, the very first UNS. Most people don't know this. The very first unified namespace under this architecture that we're talking about was developed in 2005 um, in a salt mine, and, and it was my goal was to unify all data and information in in our mine and on surface in one location. So, from Stamler, which is where they're dropping in the raw material and breaking up the rock, to the screen plant, to the hoists to the surface to the pads and and that was all data highway plus the original unified namespace was built using dynamic data dynamic data exchange dde the, the same topic namespace that you can build like in an excel spreadsheet using dde that's what how it was originally built it didn't move it went to opc after that and then it moved to mqtt once mqtt came out and now that's when it really just sort of blew up but so at HiveMQ... You're a developer advocate. Are you doing any like uh, sales engineering, or 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 are you? Is your is your primary focus to educate developers?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So mine is a really community focused uh, uh, role. So it's mainly about educating uh, the community around MQTT, Black and uh, of late the uh, Unified Namespace. And uh, obviously, kudos to you. I mean. The, the unified namespace didn't like, make sense to me right away. I'd I've, I've been listening to you for years, <laughs> just kind of like pounding on you. And I was like, what is this guy talking about? You know, So I was like, kind of trying to, 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 to absorb a lot of these things. And then it started to really make sense as I kind of like understood all the different protocols, all the limitations of OPCUA and all the kind of the powers of MQT Sparkplug. And then, so I didn't have the tools to kind of like imagine it first. But as soon as I that all the knowledge, started to make sense. And it, it, when I understood it, it made like oh, like sense. It, it was like an obvious thing to do for me. Okay. Like I didn't understand how you could really do it any other way. So that's why it's something that has really resonated for me, with me since. And I've decided to kind of like really focus on that more at IMQ as well.
0: I, I tell this story all the time. I was at the ARC show in, so the ARC advisory group in. They do a show in Orlando every year. It's the beginning of the year, January, February, whatever. And so I, I went out there a few years ago. John, uh, McLe- John McLeod flies out. He's doing his normal thing. I hate those types of shows. I don't, I'm don't. i not a fan of crowds and that kind of stuff. So he calls me and he says, you need to come out here. So I, I catch a flight late. I come out for the last day and I run into John Rinaldi from Real Time Automation. Right? He sits on the user group at the OPC Foundation. John is a fucking legend in our industry. I mean, he, in terms of protocol converters and I mean, there's very few people in our industry who know as much about industrial protocols and John Rinaldi does. I mean, I, in fact, I don't know anyone who knows more than John does. So if there's somebody out there, I'd love to meet them. So Rinaldi and I, he, John used to, he was like the precursor to us, right? He would do, he'd send out a newsletter and it was the real time automation industrial newsletter. And he would send it out, I think it was in December. And I, I ran I, the previous December, so two months earlier, he had sent out his newsletter. And in that newsletter, it was MQTT is not everything it's cracked up to be, it's not the future of industry, blah, blah, blah. Right. So I go out and I, I meet John at the ARC advisory show. We sit down and, and I have a great conversation with him. And and we go back and forth on MQTT versus OPC. And I said to John, same thing with you. I said, John, I have absolutely no doubt you're going to come around. Like, I don't have any doubt that as you dive a little deeper into it, you're going to come around, right? And I, I, I promise you. And sure enough, like a year later, he posts this mea culpa on LinkedIn. He says, I was wrong. MQTT is everything it's cracked up to be, you know and and what i've said is what you just said right there how you didn't really you know you, once you got it you got it like once it it clicked it was like once you once you saw everything it just became so self-evident right i have heard that so many times you know and so why do we have iot.university why did we create a youtube channel all of it was centered around all oh, the real problems education the problem isn't that people aren't smart or that the technology isn't there it's that we haven't connected the smart people with the technology through education, because that's one of the problems in our industry. So how are you, when you, when you shoot content, when I shoot content, I ask three questions. Well, I asked four, really. Why, why should anyone listen to me? Number one. But the first thing is, what do I want to say? What am I going to say in this content? Number two, what will my audience hear? Because oftentimes those are two different things. And the third thing is, what will they say is the most valuable thing I, I said about in this content. When you go and shoot content, what is your, when you go out to say something, how do you decide what you're gonna say and how you're gonna say it?
2: Yeah, so I think for me, really it starts with kind of like um, just understanding, listening to what the community really is looking for, what the community really struggling with, right? Once I identify this, and then this is where I kind of like follow more or less your process to say, okay, how is it, what is it that I'm gonna say about this topic? And how am I going to deliver this? And what's the, what's the key message that I hope like someone would take away from this? That That's something that is really critical. So at the end of this video, this is the, the, the key that I hope someone takes away from this, that addresses those pain points that I would have identified within the community. So it's pretty much yeah, more or less the same. Like Hive
0: uh, MQ as a broker. This is a question I wanted to ask. I, w- I wasn't sure I was going to ask it, but... So you've been there long enough now where you've had to, you had a chance to really, really kick the tires. So I want to say a couple of things to just the general community. You guys hear me talk about brokers all the time. The two gold standards in MQTT brokers out there right now, you have HiveMQ and you have EMQX, right? HiveMQ comes out of Europe. EMQX comes out of China. A year ago, you guys heard me talk about that. I benchmarked both of them. I, I have relationships with both companies. I took a look. And everyone would ask me, which one should I use? The answer is you can't go wrong with either of them. But the, 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 the answer is a little more complicated than that. Companies that don't trust the Chinese are obviously not going to use EMQX, right? There is a, a real concern about EMQX and the China connection. Even though EMQX is really run in the United States and California, it's the Chinese connection that makes people really concerned about it, right? And, you know, that's a real thing here in the United States. Whether it's justified or not, it, that, that, those fears are there. Then in, in the complaint about HiveMQ was cost, right? HiveMQ is, it, 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 the entry-level cost is too, too high, right? So what I did was I just threw both of that aside and I benchmarked the two platforms. So I just said, which one is the most performant, has the best features, all kind of stuff. And in the end, they were both pretty close. EMQX was more performant initially, one of the things I wanted to say is that's no longer the case because I did just complete my new benchmark with the latest release of HiveMQ. They, you guys announced, I don't remember how many tags it was, 100 million topics, right? It was 100 million topic benchmark, million. which, by the way, that's never happened before. So that is a groundbreaking announcement that HiveMQ made within the last month or six weeks that they that they had an enterprise implementation with hundred 100 million topics. That's never been the highest I'd ever seen before that was about 50, okay? Um so it's literally doubled the benchmark. So HiveMQ now is the most performant broker on the planet. So in and I I'll, I'll have the final results EMQX versus HiveMQ looks like it's about 18 to 19% more performant HiveMQ is than EMQX as it stands today. But now that you've been there, you've been there for a little while now, what, what's something you would want the community to know about HiveMQ that you don't think they do know?
2: So I think the the most important thing really uh, about the uh, HiveMQ broker is um, something that we you, you kind of like take for granted the, uh, I think maybe what you call, I think Rick calls them the illities right? Things like reliability, availability, and, and, and so on and so forth. So those are the things that it's easy to take for granted when you just want to kind of like get started and you just want to put a broker and get going. But as soon as you t- want to to scale your system out, this is where you kind of like really realize that, okay, I really need something that is uh, is, is can angle that scale. I mean, to your point, we uh, demonstrated like the 200 million uh, connections uh, recently, which is how much this uh, uh, broker could scale. And so that's the most important thing. And also just the, 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 the clustering technology is something that is also really not 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 very known out there. The ability to really kind of like replicate that data to make sure that not even a single message is lost, right? To kind of re- replicate all of the data across all the different nodes, and it's, it's it's done in such a robust manner. So even myself, when I discover all of these things, I'm I was just using a broker and I didn't really kind of pay much attention to what goes on behind this. Because when you're,
0: when you're dealing with 100 topics or 1,000 topics, it doesn't make, it's not a big, you know, you got one connection with a exactly. with 1,000 topics. It's not a big deal, right? I mean, it's, but now what we're talking about is thousands of nodes, tens of thousands of nodes all connected into the same infrastructure and you're dealing with topics in the millions, right? And it, you know, most people can't fathom you know, what kind of throughput, A, how fast, you know, a a piece of software has to run to be able to even handle that, right? I mean, you you almost can justify, you're a hardware guy, right? You can almost justify writing a broker in machine code so that you can get that performance, right? You could almost justify doing it in machine code to get that level of performance as opposed to running it through some type of interpreter or going the compiled route. But um, let me... I, a couple of things I wanted to revert back to, which is we talked about digital transformation here. One of the things we're going to do right now is we're going to play uh, like a three or four minute clip from Tesla's investor day, okay? But I wanted to talk about a little bit, kind of lay the foundation. I want to get Kutsai's um, reaction to, the, to this video here, and then I'll give mine as well. A lot of people will ask me, you know, you know why digital transformation? Like, why do I need to digitally transform? And at the end of the day, the answer is really quite simple. It's just so you can stay in business. Like, I mean, that's just the, that's the ba- the base, the baseline is if you're not a digital company, you, you I mean, it us if you're not digital in 2030, you're not, you won't even exist. We won't even be talking about you. Okay. Uh, if you're not digital today, it's going to be really hard to catch up. Like if you don't already have your digital strategy, you're pretty much in a lot of trouble. Okay. Um, one of the things that we talk about, we have this digital transformation maturity assessment. We look at digital maturity of companies. And I know that HiveMQ does the exact same thing. When you guys go in and take a look at an organization, you're trying to gauge the maturity level of that organization in terms of digital, right? Do they have the right strategy, the right leadership, the right mentality? Do they have the IT infrastructure, right? You know, the the whole deal. The most mature company on the planet for the last six years, Has been Tesla. Okay, Tesla is about four percentage, four percentage points higher. Their score is an 86 out of 100 on the digital transformation maturity scale. That's out of 1,380 something companies globally in our data set. the The next closest company is four points behind them at 82. The next closest company after that is in the low 70s. The next lowest, the next closest company after that is in the 60s. And then everyone else is cl- clustered in the mid fifties. If you look at that bell curve, okay. And people will ask me, you know, how can you say that about Tesla? And wh- what I'm going to play in this video here, I'm going to play a clip that's going to prove my point. Okay, um, this is from Tom Zhu, who is the okay Tesla's not very good at job titles, but in a nutshell, he's second in command at Tesla. He was in charge. He was basically CEO. Of tesla china and now he's in charge of all uh, manufacturing and sales in north america and canada he's going to be you know doing giga mexico and all that stuff i'm going to play this audio clip and then we're going to talk about here's why you have to digitally transform because you're competing against companies who can achieve this okay here we go
3: so um what it takes to ramp a gigafactory well if you have a 600 robots 10,000 trained employees or 5,000 human and 5,000 um, optimists, and hundreds of processes, you can do it. Sounds simple, but it's extremely hard. So there's two um, key metrics that we predominantly focus on. It is the um, overall equipment effectiveness and the cycle time. Um, in Tesla, um, we're setting the passing grade for our vehicle factories um, with 90% OEE and 45 second cycle time.
0: All right, I'm gonna stop right there, okay. In case you couldn't hear, Tom Zhu said that they are setting their target, acceptable overall equipment effectiveness at 90%. Okay? Okay. Like 90, a real 90%. 90% never fucking happens. There's no company out there with 90% OEE unless they're pencil whipping it. Okay? <laughs> when you implement, all the MES people who are on here right now know that when you deploy a digital... MES system. Most companies find out that their OEE is somewhere in the 30s to 40s. That one of the first things they learn is that they're in a 30 to 40% OEE range and oftentimes it takes them 18 months to get into the 70s. Okay, Nobody gets to the 90s. Nobody. And Tesla's OEE standard, that is acceptable level 90%. 90%. All right, let's continue with the piece here.
3: What that means, um, the OEE really evaluates um, the equipment uptime, the um, machine performance, and the quality. Simply put, um, this is the um, actual um, production time on a good quality product versus the planned productive time. Uh, the higher, the better. Um, the 45-second cycle time. That means you, know, you expect every 45 seconds there's a car running off the final assembly line uh, in the factory. Um, and the faster we rent, um, the faster we can get to the economy of scale. Um, if you look at um, the chart on the, right, uh, on the left, um, Shanghai will um, be able to significantly drop our labor hours per car.
0: Josh, go ahead and share that, that chart while we play this.
3: Um, during the rent, um, the little dip that happened in the last um, Q2 2022, um, because of the, the COVID shutdown. Um, and on the right is the Fremont um, Model Y shop. Even this is a six year old facility, the team there still be able to optimize the material flow, eliminate all the um, single point of failure, and drive higher outputs, um, hence, uh, reduce the labor hours. Um, and actually, this factory keeps setting a new record. Um, yesterday, they just had a new factory daily record. Congrats, Fremont team.
0: Uh, all right. Real quick. So keep that chart up, Josh. Okay. And I'm going to bring Kutsai in here. Number one, it's not possible for Tesla to do what they've done here. I So they're doing two things on the left. The chart on the left-hand side is showing Shanghai's output. There are two, there's two numbers uh, on here. Number one is the light gray line is their labor hours. And the, and the blue line is their output. So labor hours continue to go down and their output continues to go up. There was a big initiative in the second quarter of 2022 to drive these efficiency improvements. But doing that drive required that, A, they were a fully digital company. That means everything was connected together. They were acquiring the data so that they could calculate the KPIs accurately and in real
1: time so that they could drive these efficiency improvements. Mm-hmm. And and if you, for anyone listening on the podcast, you'll, you, you, what you can't see is the model uh, Y output at Shanghai. They're able to produce more cars with less labor hours than the Fremont factory is able to do. So, like, they're able to do more with less on the second gen factory. Imagine the third gen factory.
0: There's another piece in here that's hard for people to understand. And that is this earlier on in the presentation. So, most people, if you looked at the media, the way they talked about Tesla's investor day, they were like, oh, Tesla's lost all their great ideas. You know, there was a big letdown. Bullshit. There were three major announcements in there that should scare the shit out of every automotive manufacturer on the planet. Number one, Tesla goes from bare ground to operating Gigafactory in 9.5 months. Z- bare ground. To operating facility in 9.5 months number two once they're up once they've ramped up so that they what they have they have sustainable production and then they decide to do their secondary ramp where they improve efficiency increase output and lower labor costs they are unmatched on the planet not just in automotive but in all of industry and it's not even close and it's not even remotely achievable unless you are a full stack digital company. Part of the reason you can't achieve these types of gains without being able to scale data acquisition, storage analysis and transformation into information and products like HiveMQ technology like MQTT makes all of that possible at scale. That's the big thing, but Kutsai, your when you hear that piece, when you hear Tom Zhu talk about that, what is your reaction? And I know MES is not your, like you're not a you're you're yeah. you're, you're a hardware guy, and then you're a topology guy at the, at the top end, but exactly. what is your reaction to that video?
2: Yeah, so I mean, first of all, for me, like for for any system, really, for any system that uh, operates at ninety percent efficiency regardless it's an MES system or an energy ca- conversion system, that's like really operating at maximum capacity because in it's most price. cases, it's impossible to get to 100. So those are unavoidable losses. So it's safe to say that Tesla is running at 100% capacity as it is right now, right? Yeah. Which is mind-boggling for me. And also kind of like um, uh, comparing it with the figure that you said at 30%, because I was about to ask, what what's, what's the normal operating range for OEE? And you compared with thirty percent. That is like really mind uh, right. most,
0: companies, most companies, most companies, when they get to fifty percent OEE, and for those of you, um, there's two numbers. There's a big discussion on LinkedIn right now. I, I can't remember the guy's name who said OEE is not the number you should worry about. You should worry about the the sub KPIs, availability, quality, performance, and then you should really focus on asset utilization. My response to that is that's not true. OEE and TEEP are two numbers that are very, very valuable, the higher you get up in the organization. And and availability, quality, performance, and asset utilization, those are numbers that are more and more valuable as you get down lower in the organization. I, if I work on the plant floor, I don't care about the OEE number. If I, if I work in maintenance, I really only care about the availability number. And if I work in operations, I only care about performance. And if I work in quality or engineering, I care about the quality number, right? So the closer you get to the plant floor, the more you care about the sub KPI. Okay, but there's another number, and that's TEP. OEE is how well do we perform when we're scheduled to perform? TEP is how well are we performing relative to how well we could perform if we were operating at 100% capacity? We ran 24 hours a day, seven days a week, minus all of our minimum um, downtime for like shutdowns and stuff. The reason I bring this up is. Tesla is a fully digital company. They're not a car company. They're a data company that makes cars. And in order to be a data company, you got to be fully digital. In order to be fully digital, you have to have an infrastructure that scales because so many things happen all day long. So many changes are made in an organization that if you you had to manually connect every change to your infrastructure, you would never be able to keep up. And Tesla doesn't operate that way. You know, Tesla doesn't... is, uh, is Elon Musk the 21st century Henry Ford? No, Henry Ford is the 15th century Elon Musk.
1: Yeah. Not even the 20th century Elon Musk. He's the 15th century Elon Musk. I want to add in something. Remember yeah. we were talking about, so it's relative to investor day and like I totally forgot, but it just dawned on me. I was like, you know how you're, we're talking about unified namespace and all data information is available to all consumers within the organization. Yep. and we knew Tesla was doing that, but in the investor day, under the financials uh, section, they they literally show like, hey, Tesla has their own operating system. Uh, I don't know if I could let me share my screen real quick. I want um, to. hold on. <laughs> <laughs> All right, look, this is this is where they it's later in the presentation, but and they talked about scaling SGNA like, hey, when you're selling vehicles, how do they keep their operating leverage so you know profitable? through their Tesla operating system, right? So here's the Tesla operating system, factory, warehousing, services, customer information, mobile app, finance, human resources, recruiting, data analysis. uh, Guess
0: what's what's underneath that? So if you see the square on the outside of those, there's nine slides there. Imagine those nine elements were sitting on a piece of paper. Do you know what's on that piece of paper? A unified namespace built,
1: edge-driven report by exception lightweight. That's so, how they're able to transform their whole company. That's exactly it. And now we have actual acknowledgement from Tesla publicly. And everyone's like, there's no announcements in here. It's like, I'm oh, like look at what they're doing.
3: <laughs> One other
1: company has created their own software program for, you know, every other company is buying this off the shelf and trying to integrate it, you know, with contractors. Tesla's doing this all in-house from building to design and manufacturing, everything so all
0: right real real quick so which brings me i'm gonna we're gonna come back to open iot standards because i want to talk about um because i, I want to end the conversation with where Kutsai and i think Kutsai, where do you think the mqtt standard should go where do you think the spark plug standard should go what do you think's missing what do you think's right about it i mean i think more and more we need to talk about this this is a conversation i have this conversation with rick balada all the time rick is a thousand percent right about when he talks about the limitations of spark plug, he hits the fucking nail on the head every time, you know. He's a he's a thousand percent right. But before we get to that, I want to talk about the Arduino Opta. I want to make sure we talk about the Opta. All right. So yep. I got you. You posted a few weeks ago. You know, you got your Opt in house. I see it's it's on your board there behind you. Okay. I got my Arduino Opta the yesterday. I have the Wi Fi edition. Um, I actually bought one the day, and then Arduino is actually sending me an evaluation as well. Um for those of you that don't know, the Arduino has a pro line. Most people know it as portenta. They know the portenta part of the pro line, but Arduino is making their way into the PLC market. Okay. And, um, we're, I'm shooting educational content on the, on the Opta specifically Wi-Fi, introducing you to it, the development environment, the, here's the high level. And then I'm going to get into it. Cause you've had a chance to play with it for a few weeks and I want to kind of get your, your take on it. Um, the Arduino. I don't. First off, I don't know how they're charging. I mine was two hundred nine dollars to the door. Uh, that's eight eight inputs, four outputs. I think. Uh, I I don't. I'm not reading the specs, but I think it's eight in four out. Uh, I have the Wi-Fi module um, over the year Firmware updates uh, supports uh, um, IEC six eleven thirty one three programming. You know, fi- you know all the all the various programming languages. They have a new Arduino PLC IDE you can program this PLC with either the standard Arduino IDE or with the PLC IDE. Uh, the software is free. You only got to pay your license by device. Um, you know, and it's $209 shipped to the door, okay? The, what's crazy is this, and so people have, have been asking me, what's the Opta, what do you compare it to? Well, think of it in the family of Opta, you know, Arduino Opta, then you have PLC Next directly above that, and then you'll have the Opto 22 Groove Epic directly above that. And as you move up, you're getting more and more features, right? The the Groove Epic is sort of the Rolls Royce, right? The PLC Next is your mid-level. And then this is your entry level, right? But you're going to be doing the same things. You're going to be doing process control and edge analytics and IoT Um projects using these PLCs as opposed to like using a control logics, compact micrologics where you're really doing process control. And that's basically it. I'm super excited. I can't, I just can't first off, I don't know how they're making any money on it. And number two, uh, I I, I can't tell you, I haven't been this excited for a piece of hardware in (laughs) a decade. I mean, it's crazy, but you've had a chance to play with it. So what are, what are the two questions I think everybody wants to have answered is number one, are you impressed or not? And number two, where do you see the best applications? You're a hardware guy. So yep. where do you see the, the Arduino Opta fitting in terms of application for the standard um, digital transformation professional?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. So first of all, I'm, 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 I'm really impressed, right? I mean, this is something that I've, I, I don't know what took them so long. This is something that really made sense really to... to, to to really uh, put out there, I've been expecting this maybe five years earlier or so because just the the productivity gains alone are just like really staggering. Just the ability to just go onto online, look up some libraries, some example code, or, or like communities, or you could like, just write. Uh, I've been playing around with the uh, um, Arduino for like for the past ten years or so, and mostly it's been on hobby projects, and I've. Always wished I could use all those skills, you know, in a like real production environment. So that's right. why, really, for me, it's something that I'm genuinely excited about. Is you, and uh, that was really impressive, right? And um, the platform itself, uh, it's 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 really uh, interesting in the sense that you can program it again to your point using like your Arduino sketch and your your your, your IEC standard uh, languages, yeah. But so, but what I think perhaps was going to happen the IEC is, is that's just my opinion, is going to be like a transition really because eventually, right, everyone is really want to want to use the sketch, right? Because this right. is really what comes out naturally with a lot of uh, young folk that are coming into the space here, yeah, which is really good because it gives you that uh, ability to kind of like use the the, the IEC languages and then also transition into uh, the Arduino sketch, which is super, super powerful. I mean, if you've... If you've seen the amount of libraries that are out there for Arduino, it's, it's just crazy what you could do with that one. So I mean, the fact that you've got um, uh, half duplex uh, mode uh, uh, bus TCP going down to your uh, uh, field field devices, and you've also got your your uh, eight channels uh, inputs, and and also on the other end you've got your Wi Fi connectivity, it kind of like really sits there at the like at the middle of IT OT. Integration. So, I mean, things like your warehouse management thing, stuff, like asset tracking, because it's also got like a Bluetooth low energy, which means even moving equipment yep. and stuff like that. So, there's so much data integration capabilities on that uh, legal piece of device that you could uh, do with it. So, I'm there's, there's, there's really so much that you could do as far as digital transformation is concerned. So, here
0: here's a use case. So, in, in our test lab here, so I'm going to be shooting all the content. So, what here's the what I'm using the Opta for in my first project. So I have a, a Chinese made rectifier used in like gold plating. So if you're familiar with any type of plating projects, you use a rectifier to, and you know, basically electrolysis to um, um, essentially bond a gold plating to some underlying substrate, right? Use a rectifier to do that, right? And that's a DC powered rectifier. Generally, th- this one's made in China. It has a, a data sheet that, that gives its Modbus registers on it. So what I'm doing is I'm going to use the Opta to talk to this rectifier over Modbus. Then what I'm going to do is I'm going to convert those registers into a Spark Plug B payload, which I'm then going to publish into an MQTT broker using the Arduino Opta. So I will be able to turn a dumb Modbus TCP device into a smart Spark plug B device plugged into a digital infrastructure. That's what I'm going to be testing it with originally. The big thing that stands out to me, what well, here's what I love, is the ability because of Arduino Sketch, you you're really coding on, on the device itself. And so you can write your own Spark Plug B program. You, know, you can turn a data structure into a spark plug b node inside and i've been doing this with like you know esp's and and, and 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 you know arduino unos and i've been doing this in the past but you don't do it at scale i mean you certainly don't do it at scale what i'm doing is turning like a a temperature sensor that's outside um you know outside my bedroom into a, a spark plug node doing that with an arduino but now i'm doing it i'm going to be able to do it for an industrial process you know and and really, right now, the only other place you can do that is like on an Opto Twenty Two, on a Groove Epic, you can do that. Now, the Groove Epic is natively Spark Plug, but you would be, you could still write a Spark Plug connector on an Opto Twenty Two if you wanted to. But what 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 are your plans on your board back there? Do you just have the demo project running in it, or have you done any development in that PLC? And if you if you have, what have you done? If you haven't, what is it you're going to do?
2: Yeah, so I I, I haven't, but what I have there. I don't know if you can see, so I've got the, 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 that one connected to uh, a temperature and humidity sensor. So I'm just going to be like monitoring the temperature and humidity here in the lab. Uh, it's, I was going to be talking over ModPass RTU, right? And then converting that into uh, MQTT and then publishing it into the Hive MQ. And also, I think also for me, I see it really as a useful tool for protocol translation. That's going to be like really useful for that.
0: I, I think the big thing for where I really see it initially it's going to be people using optos to demonstrate value of the infrastructure. I'm going to use an Opta in a small proof of concept because it's a small capital investment. I can do it in my spare time. And then I can show people in my plant or I can show my customer what I mean by edge driven report by exception, lightweight infrastructure. Yeah, you know, I, I can, I can do it with their data. That's where I think it's going to, that's where I think the big value is going to be. Josh, any, Questions in the queue we need to answer. Any questions for Kudzai? Anything we, we should touch on? Is a Kafka message queue system suitable for use as a UNS? Uh, it is, well, I'll, I'll, I'll have Kudzai answer this as well, but uh, the answer is it is suitable as a consumer of a unified namespace. So plugging a Kafka Message queue system into a UNS and then using it to opt. What we use Kafka for is to take a unified namespace and essentially turn that into uh, time series data for storage into a data lake. That's that, and we use Kafka in the middle at at a at a high level at a ten thousand foot view. That's what we're using it for. What about you, Kusai? Your
2: yeah, absolutely. I mean that's the really the same uh, uh, use case there because. Your unified namespace is your snapshot, but you could have that data since Kafka can retain data for like five days or so, yep. use it to as, to buffer that data. So it consumes from the unified namespace and then retains that data for consumption by some uh, enterprise applications. So it's a way really of uh, extending the unified namespace as it were.
0: Perfect. Josh, anything else on there? What has significantly changed in Opta? Well, in terms of changed, what I would say is there are features that never existed in the Arduino ecosystem other than what was tested in the Portenta line. If you look at like machine control, for example, or the H2, there were concepts that were tested by Arduino in the Portenta line that were really focused on industry. The, the Opta is, is the first micro PLC from Arduino, so if you are if you're used to working with Arduino microcontrollers, and we're, we're we're I'm shooting educational content on this, and there will it'll be like a free workshop that you'll be able to just go and watch. It it, it I'm going to show the transition between starting out working with a Opta as a microcontroller. You can literally treat it as a microcontroller in the Arduino IDE but then the transition from microcontroller to PLC using the PLC IDE. But what's changed is this layer of programmable logic laid on top of the Arduino Sketch um, infrastructure. That's really what's changed. And also, it's obviously rated for industry. All, so it, it meets all of the industrial ratings, which the you know, standard microcontrollers do not. Kutsai... Anything? Any feedback from
2: you there? Yeah, so I think you 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 basically touched all the uh, important points there, really. So I've I've I don't have experience with the uh, Portenta, so this is like really my first uh, PLC Arduino line. So I'm yet to find out more about how really this this works. So I'm used to do using your your Uno, your Arduino, Duo, all those like low level embedded microcontrollers.
0: So Portenta, the only difference between say Portenta machine control, uh, or well, actually let's use H two. So the Portena, Portenta H two, um, it's H two, right, Zach? It's the H two. Um, it's it's a more robust microcontroller. That's what it is. It's a larger board, more I O, but the the manufacturing quality is much higher. It's not. It's clear that it's meant to last twenty years in some environment. You know, but developing on it is exactly the same. It just has additional features. It has its own library so that you can connect to all of the inputs and outputs on the H2. Can you build an MQTT publisher in Opta? Yes, easily. I mean, you can use the MQTT li- the native MQTT libraries in Arduino Sketch, or you could actually extend. You can take the native library and then you can extend by building in the Sparkbug B. Structure, So you can make it a spark plug B node as well. But yes, you can make it a publisher that's native. Really? Yeah. And by the way, they sold out all of them in three days. Wow. Like the, every single device in Europe and the United States or North America and in Europe completely sold out three days. <laughs> I mean, they, they literally put on their Twitter, all the pallets of them being shipped out. They, they were like literally this is that there. If you go to Arduino's uh, Twitter, the feed there, there was literally a thing we're shipping out the last of the units we had in inventory. And it's like just this big, long line of pallets. Of, and, and by the way, the box is tiny. So in order, think about how many of these go on one pallet. It was crazy. All right. La- last question for you could say before we call it a day. So, you know, you're, you're a developer advocate at HiveMQ, industry 4.0 TV you know you're an influencer in the space what do you get what do you a what do you have planned at hive mq for the rest of the year what should people be looking out for in terms of stuff you're doing in advocacy for developers and then what do you have planned you know just for yourself outside of hive mq
2: oh yeah absolutely i think uh mostly for the HiveMQ. mq um, Part of it, I'm going to be mostly focused on really kind of like talking more about uh, Spark Black, right, and also kind of like really pushing the uh, the conversation around. I mean, we spoke about the need to kind of make this also robust, right, the, the Spark part platform. I was talking uh, with someone uh, recently that you know Spark Black is so easy and and so 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 simple to adopt that people are even willing to to go around it just to make it work because. Despite its 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 shortcomings, because there isn't any other solution out there, so it's something that really needs to, to 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 we need to pay attention to and make sure it works for everyone.
1: Rick, so Rick, Rick yeah. lot
0: and I talk about this, right? I didn't mean to cut you off, but I want to get your take on this. You know, one of the things that Rick says, and he he's absolutely right, is you know there there's a fundamental issue with the spark plug standard is that it's device centric, so it assumes that everything you're building or all the payload structures you are building belong to a device. Now, a device isn't clearly defined. A device could be a sensor. It could be a PLC. It could be, it could be a cabinet. A cabinet could be a device. Yeah. Or a, a device could be a series of things put together. But the way that they build the semantic hierarchy, which is group ID, node ID, device ID, creates limitations in the way that you can structure your payloads. That's one limitation that they have to get away from. I would argue they need to move telemetry-centric. They need to move away from devices and to the sensor level, right? If you go to the sensor level, you can cover everything. But right now, there's a level of abstraction that you cannot get to because of the way the spark plug standard is written, including spark plug 3, which is the newest version. And then the other big limitation in MQTT is that there's no mechanism for being able to call a method on a payload. So lots of different things. You know um a, a topic is not an object, so I can't do something like topic dot method pass in an argument to the broker, and then the broker runs a piece of code on that topic and returns a result to the client that's a, that's a basic function that everyone wants, and there's no standard for that. You can develop that Hive could build build that into their broker, but then they wouldn't be. MQTT 5 or MQTT 3 compliant if they put that in and that's something that's missing in the standard right also microservice support that kind of thing is there anything else you think is missing or what would you like to see in the MQTT standard or in the spark plug standard that we don't currently have other than those I'm I'm assuming you agree with those but
2: yes I certainly agree with those I mean there's there's quite a lot of uh, of low hanging fruits I mean I don't know if you agree with me also the ability to publish JSON uh, uh, payloads right Yep, you no, know, that's also something for me—a a, long-hanging fruit that can could, could be resolved with Sparkplug.
0: Yeah, right now you can't publish a JSON JSON object. You can publish a string that looks like a JSON, but it's nothing but a dictionary. But it's not an actual object. So on the consumer side, you would have to turn it back into a JSON object so that you could do you could run any of the JSON methods on that object. Right now, you can't actually publish as type JSON. It ends up getting published as type string in the format of JSON, All right? Exactly. Excellent. All right, Kutsai, any parting thoughts? Anything you wanna say to the community or um, you know, anything you want them to take home with them before we, uh, we call it a day?
2: Yeah, so I mean, just to say thank you to the community. The community has really been uh, supportive, especially for me, my journey, and also yourself, Walker, thank you. I mean, even if we never got a chance to talk before that, You've always been like, you know, sometimes it gets uh, lonely talking about this IoT, especially back in the days when there was really not a lot of people talking about this stuff. Just knowing that there's someone who validates your message is kind of really important for me. So thank you so much for that also.
0: And I, I want to extend the, the thank you to you. I, 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 truth be told, man, I, I see a lot of content out there. I just I think is mis, I don't want to say misinformation, but it misleads people sometimes or sends them down the right, wrong path or it confuses the market. And I never get that with you. I mean, you 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 know, you and Tim Wilborn are two of like if if I recommend any two people to watch in terms of content, it's you and Tim Wilborn. And it's it's a hey, you need to watch this guy Kutsai, and hey, you need to watch this guy Tim. You put the two of those together, and you get a great education from them. So, anyway, Kutsai, I really appreciate. I'd love to have you back on. Um, I you know, and and I um, I'm gonna be on your podcast too, right? Uh, Coming up, okay? Yep. So we're gonna kind of. You know, return the favor. I'd love to have you back on. Zach, Vaughn, do you guys have any parting comments, questions, concerns before we call it a day?
1: Not me. No. will see you guys in a few weeks. Or next. Right. Audience,
0: uh, like, subscribe, comment down below, especially the Tesla Investor Day piece. Mm-hmm. Was that helpful in playing that audio? Is that something we should put in the podcast, not put in the podcast, that type of thing and have us comment on that kind of stuff? I'd love to get your feedback specifically on that. Please reach out to Kudsai at industry 40tv Go check out the UNS Essentials at HiveMQ's website, and we will see you guys